All right. <clears throat> Good morning again. Um, if it looks at all like I've, I've been crying, it's because of allergies, I assure you guys. Um, man, I, every year, you know, I look forward to spring. I just can't wait for it to come. And then every year I get surprised, you know, a couple days in where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the bad side of it. So... <clears throat> Um, we are now in our fourth week in our Scenes and Acts series where we're looking at some of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, uh, the start of the Christian church right after Jesus' resurrection, uh, the story of how the message of Jesus spread out over the world. And this week we are looking at a story in Acts that is absolutely pivotal. Uh, not just in the book of Acts, but in the entire Bible. This is what I would call a game-changing moment in the narrative scripture, and it is the story of Cornelius and Peter. Now, in order to really understand and appreciate the significance of the story that we're about to read, we need to recognize that so far Christianity has been a Jewish movement. Right? It was started by Jesus, a Jew, who was born into a Jewish context, and he gathered a bunch of Jewish men uh, to be his disciples. And after he rose from the dead, he commissioned Jews with the task of going and sharing the gospel. And his ministry when he was on earth was primarily to Jews. And when the Holy Spirit came down at the beginning of the book of Acts, it was on the, the day of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came down and filled Jews with his presence and power. And so far, as the message of Jesus has been spreading, it has primarily been shared and received by Jews. And yet, I am quite confident that most, if not all of us in this room right now, are not Jews, right? So what happened? Uh, how did this message about a Jewish Messiah in a Jewish context, break out to bless people from nations all over the world. Well, this story, I would say, is the turning point. Okay? It's the turning point where it becomes clear to the Apostle Peter that the good news about Jesus really is for all people. And uh, that affects everything about the mission as the church moves forward. So if you have a Bible, turn uh, to Acts Chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. And this is kind of a, a long story, so leave your Bibles open. We're going to be going through this passage throughout the whole sermon. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. All right, so this man Cornelius, he might have looked something like this. Uh, is a Roman military official. And he's a centurion, which means that he was responsible for about 80 soldiers. And that means that this guy is a leader, and he's somebody that the Roman government has entrusted with, with power. And although it might not be obvious from the verse that we just read, uh, Cornelius was a Gentile. And if you're not familiar with that term, that just means that he was not a Jew. For Jews, there are two kinds of people in the world. Jews and not Jews. Jews and Gentiles. And Cornelius is a Gentile. So continuing in verse 2. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. 
One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Okay, first remarkable thing in this story. Here we have a, uh, <clears throat> a story written by a Jewish author, and it's talking about a man who is not a Jew, and it's describing him as devout and God-fearing. Devout and God-fearing. This was not the way that Jews were inclined to see Gentiles. Uh, and yet Cornelius' spirituality is being described in a positive way. And not only does the author of this story describe Cornelius' spirituality in a positive way, but the angel of the Lord who comes to him describes his spirituality in a positive way, right? He says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, Cornelius, I'm here because you're doing something right. You know, you're, you're showing compassion for the poor, you're, you're praying, you're, you're seeking God, and that's why I'm here. I appreciate this moment a lot, actually, uh, because I think it gives us some insight into a question that many Christians struggle with, uh, a question that I have struggled with, which is, if Jesus is the way of salvation, the only name under heaven by which people may be saved, what about all those people who've never heard about Jesus? And yeah, sure, nobody's perfect, but there are people I know who are no better morally than me. And what about them, Lord? Do you, do you care about them? Do they have a chance to be saved? Do they have a chance to experience eternal life? Well, what this story implies is that if there are people out there who want to know God, People who are seeking, God wants to reveal himself to them, right? We can trust that God knows about those people, that he cares about those people, and that he hears them. We can trust that if they are responding to God in whatever knowledge they have, with compassion, with prayers, seeking him, that that rises up to God like a memorial offering before him. God's not going to forget about those people, just like God didn't forget about Cornelius. But, okay, and this is very important to recognize, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter whether or not people hear about Jesus. It doesn't mean that conversion, okay, the experience of being born again, isn't incredibly important, isn't incredibly significant. Because notice, the angel doesn't say, we haven't gotten to what the angel says next, but the angel doesn't say, oh, Cornelius, you know, you're doing a great job, you're being compassionate, you're praying, yeah, you and God are cool, end of story. No, the next thing that the angel says is intended to lead Cornelius to faith in Christ. It's to put him, it's, it's to take the faith that he already has and then deepen that faith, allow that faith, uh, use that faith that he already has to direct him towards conversion, to, a, to, a, to an experience of being born again through faith in Jesus. So here's what the angel says in verse 5. He says, Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. 
he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a, dev a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So what the angel does here is he tries to connect Cornelius with the apostle Peter, right? Because he wants Cornelius to know about Jesus and to have this experience of conversion because good spirituality, even praiseworthy spirituality, even spirituality that rises up to God like a memorial offering is incomplete if it hasn't become aware of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if it hasn't become aware of the gospel, if it hasn't had that conversion experience. Without that, there's something that critical okay, that is missing. And part of our job as the church, uh, just like it was for the Apostle Peter, is to direct people who are seeking God, like Cornelius, to knowledge of Jesus, okay, to knowledge of the forgiveness of sins that only comes through his name. You know, we, we can't be people who are content with just good spirituality. Um, that's great. That's commendable. It rises up like a memorial offering to God. But we shouldn't be satisfied with that. What we should desire for people is for them to be truly born again. So Cornelius follows the angel's advice, right? And he sends two servants and a soldier to go and, and find Peter, the apostle Peter, and bring him. Uh, back to his home. But there's a bit of a problem here. In a little while, Cornelius's men are going to show up where Peter is and request that Peter come to Cornelius's house, but Peter is not going to be entirely comfortable with that because Peter is a Jew. And you might not know this, but devout Jews don't go into the homes of Gentiles. Or at least that was the case for Peter. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, why would that be? Well, the biggest reason has to do with food. Early in the Old Testament, uh, in what we call the Mosaic Law, um, God gave Israel certain rules and regulations for how they were supposed to live. And these rules and regulations were supposed to set them apart as a nation from the other nations. These rules were supposed to help them to keep God at the forefront of their minds in their daily lives. And what better way to keep God at the forefront of your mind than to have rules about what you can and cannot eat and how your food should be prepared, right? Because that's something you got to do every day. So one practical way that Israel was supposed to honor God was by eating certain foods and abstaining from other foods. So there were rules about what you could and could not eat. That delicious-looking shrimp right there would be off-limits because you weren't supposed to eat shellfish. Um, and, of course, there are Jews today that still keep these dietary regulations. It's called keeping kosher. And in addition to not eating certain foods, you also had to uh, prepare foods in a certain way. So foods could be regarded as clean or unclean depending on how they were prepared. So hopefully you can see why it's a problem now to go into a Gentile's house. Because if you go into a Gentile's house, you are going to be the recipient of Gentile hospitality, right? And what does hospitality involve? Food. And so if you go into a Gentile's home, there's a good chance that you're going to be offered food that you would regard as unclean. Or perhaps you'll be given some food that seems clean, but maybe it wasn't prepared the right way, and then you're uncomfortable with eating it because you might eat it and 
then find out that you ate something unclean. And of course, it's rude to turn down food, so it's just awkward, right? It's better to just stay out of Gentile homes. That was the mindset. Just like if you're an alcoholic, you might think, it's, you know, it's better just not to go to the bar. You know, even though I don't plan on drinking, it's just, it's just better not to go. So, devout Jews avoided going into the homes of Gentiles. Peter didn't go into Gentile homes. He, he didn't sit across the table and share meals with Gentiles. And for him, that, that choice was an expression of his devotion to God. And so when Cornelius's men arrive, that's going to put Peter in a very awkward position. But God is about to say something to Peter that's going to challenge his whole way of thinking. So starting in verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up and on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanting something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Uh, this week, Andrew Maluski sent me uh, this picture here that he took when he was in Joppa. Uh, and this is the area where it is believed that Peter had his vision. This is supposed to be right by the house of Simon the Tanner. So when Peter had this vision and was sitting up on the rooftop hungry, uh, this may have been what he was looking out on in that moment. So uh, kind of cool. So in this vision, Peter sees this sheet, and it's filled with all these animals that, according to the Mosaic law, are regarded as unclean, animals that, that he is not supposed to eat. And Peter hears the voice of God saying, eat. And Peter's like, no, I've never touched that stuff, God. What, what are you talking about? And then the voice of God answers Peter's protest, saying, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then as Peter is looking out at the sea, trying to figure out what did that mean? What did that mean? Some Gentiles arrive at the door. And then Peter puts it together. Okay, this was God's way of telling me that I should go with these Gentiles. This is God's way of telling me that I shouldn't be afraid to enter into the home of a Gentile. This is God's way of telling me that I shouldn't be afraid to sit across the table from a Gentile and break bread with them. So, skipping to verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius seems very excited for Peter to arrive. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. 
I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Um, oh, excuse me. Not time for that yet. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, um, after Peter asks this question, may I ask why you sent for me, Cornelius responds by telling the whole story. Tells him about the angel showing up, what happened. And <clears throat> he says... So I sent for you immediately and was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So he gives them the, he really gives them a softball. Like, just like, okay, it's time. Give us the gospel, right? And then Peter begins to speak. And he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So I said, this is a game-changing moment. This is a pivotal moment. Well, this right here is the game-changing realization. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Okay, Peter has had this radical shift in thinking where now he understands that when God looks at, at humanity as a whole, he doesn't prefer people from one nation or one culture or people who, part, who, who speak a particular language. He doesn't just care about the Jews. No. He cares about all people. He accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And what I want us to do is to try and put ourselves in Peter's shoes and just realize what a dramatic shift in perspective this is. I mean, we're in a time now where we feel like, oh yeah, of course, the message of Jesus, that's for everybody, right? But you have to understand the, the, the culture, the environment, that Peter has, has lived in. All Peter's life, he has divided humanity into two groups, you know, Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean, holy, not holy. Jews have God's favor, Gentiles do not. And what I would describe that's going on right here is that Peter is letting go of us and them thinking, which is a very, very difficult thing for human beings to do because all human beings are inclined towards what I would call us and them thinking. But if we are going to become wholehearted followers of Jesus, we need to let go of us and them thinking. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that term. This is kind of where I want to sit for a while for our application on this, on this passage. Us and them thinking, what do I mean by that? Well, us and them thinking starts with something very simple and very necessary, which is it starts with seeing people as being in our group or not in our group. And to a certain extent, you know, doing that is completely normal. It's healthy, right? I, I am a man, and so I recognize other men as being part of the us category for me when it comes to, to, uh, to gender, and I recognize women as being part of the them category, okay? Nothing wrong with that. That's just acknowledging reality, right? 
But when I say us and them thinking, I'm not just talking about the kind of thinking that acknowledges distinctions among humanity. I'm, I'm talking about a kind of thinking that goes further than that. I'm talking about a kind of thinking that exalts those in the us category and looks down on those in the them category. Exalts those in the us category and looks down on those in the them category. Um, now, <clears throat> so to go back to my example, um, it's not us and them thinking isn't just saying I'm a man, those are women, or we are men, those are women. It's saying I'm a man and I and the rest of the men are better than the women, right? Now there's a lot of different categories that we can use to divide between us and them. Okay, gender is one of them, but some other common ones, obviously race, right? Nationality, political affiliation, us and them categories, right? Now, when we are deep into us and them thinking, there are certain symptoms, and social psychologists talk about this. Um, when you're deep in us and them thinking, first symptom is we minimize or deny our group's faults, but we exaggerate the faults of those outside of our group. So, kind of a non-threatening example of this is sports, right? If, if you have a sports team that is your team, and, and you see that team and its fans as us, and the other team as them, uh, what happens if uh, your team is being called for a lot of fouls? Whose fault is it? It's the refs, right? But what if the other team is getting called for a lot of fouls? Whose fault is it? It's their fault, right? Now, sometimes that assessment may be true, Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But if you're always thinking that way, your, your assessment is probably not based in objective fact. Okay, it is a consequence of us and them thinking. All right, so symptom number two of us and them thinking, very close to the first one, we recognize or exaggerate our group's successes while ignoring or denying the successes of those belonging to another group. This happens all the time in politics, right? Okay, if you identify with one political party, you're gonna emphasize every good thing that political party does, every success they have, but any success that the opposing political party has, the opposite one, you don't even wanna acknowledge it, right? Just pretend they don't even exist. Uh, a third symptom we do what we can to gain and maintain power and privilege for our group, often at the expense of those outside our group. Maybe not even realizing that we're hurting those outside of our group. I think one of the most common ways that this kind of us and them thinking manifests itself is through nationalism. All right? Um, now, there's nothing wrong with loving the country that you're part of and wanting what's best for it, but when you are so focused only on the health and the benefits that your, your own country can have, the power and privilege that your own country have, that you're unable to see how your country's actions might be hurting another country, that is where you have fallen into us and them thinking, right? 
And then uh, finally, uh, number four, we are quick to believe bad things about groups we're not in. It's so much easier to believe some radical, crazy conspiracy about an opposing group than about your own group that you're a part of. And all four of these symptoms, they all stem from a fundamental mindset, which is the mindset of my group is more valuable than the, the other group. Uh, that's, how, that's how all of these symptoms end up emerging. Okay? Um, I was <laughs> hesitant to bring this up, but I mean, at least it'll be interesting. So, uh, <laughs> there, one area where I think we can really see us and them thinking uh, has to do with a very hot topic right now, uh, which is the topic of immigration. Okay, now. You, you say that word immigration right now and it's like the animal part of our brains lights up depending on how we feel and you know, our brains go into fight or flight mode and we can't even hear what somebody might be saying, right? So right now I encourage you, whatever your perspective might be on that issue, to just listen carefully okay, to, what, to what I'm about to say. I believe that when it comes to the immigration right, issue right now, uh, there is a manifestation going on in our culture of us and them thinking. This is it. Have you noticed that there is a tendency for certain news media outlets, I will not mention which ones they are, to report stories about immigrants who commit crimes? Uh, and these stories are presented as evidence that we must have better immigration control. Because news pundits will come on and they'll say, if this immigrant had never gotten into the country, then this woman never would have been raped. Or this car never would have crashed. Or these drugs never would have been sold. Or this person never would have been murdered. Have you guys heard these kinds of news reports? Oh, yes. yes, okay. Now, I want to suggest that this is a perfect example of us and them kind of thinking. And we should be able to re recognize this regardless of what our opinion is on how the United States should be handling the issue of immigration. And here's why I say that. Because every day there are American citizens who rape, who murder, who crash their cars, who sell drugs. So why is it that certain media outlets focus on reporting the crimes of immigrants? rather than American citizens. Now, you might assume, you might assume that it's because immigrants commit more crimes. But is that an assumption, or is it a fact? It's an assumption. According to every serious study that I have looked at about this issue, the proportion of immigrants who commit crimes is about equivalent to the proportion of American citizens that it commit crimes. Now, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but what I'm saying is if tomorrow one out of every 100 American citizens is going to commit a significant crime, about one out of every 100 immigrants is going to commit a significant crime. In fact, some studies actually suggest that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than American citizens. I don't know why that would be, perhaps because they're fearful of being deported, Right? 
But whatever the case, the evidence suggests that you should not be any more afraid of an immigrant than you are of an ordinary American citizen. Um, statistically, that is what the evidence suggests. So, why do some news media outlets choose to highlight the crimes of immigrants? And why do a, certain, a significant number of American citizens just assume that immigrants commit more crimes than American citizens? Why do so few people start to even ask the, stop to even ask the question, do immigrants actually proportionally commit more crimes than American citizens? Why does that question often not get asked? The reason is us and them thinking. Okay, it's the, this kind of thinking that we're all inclined to that assumes the best about our group and assumes the worst about the other group. It's the kind of thinking that wants to give power and privilege to our group, even if it comes at the expense of another group. It's the kind of thinking that is rooted in the assumption, whether we realize it or not, my group, my people, are more valuable than those people. So, again, whatever our opinion is on immigration, and let me just acknowledge, I realize that's a complex issue. You can't just have everyone come into the country. We don't even have enough space for that, right? I realize that it's a complicated issue. But whatever your opinion is, don't let it be rooted on this idea, this assumption that immigrants are more or are less law-abiding and more violent than the ordinary American citizen, because that is an assumption that is not rooted in fact. It is rooted in us and them thinking. And just like Peter, we need to be set free from us and them thinking. We shouldn't just assume that people outside of our group are unclean, because God has said, do not call unclean whatever I have made clean. We should not assume that God only values our group. We should recognize that regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of political affiliation, God cares about all people, and he accepts all who love and fear him. So <clears throat> we need to be willing to let go of this us and them thinking. We need to be willing to sit across the table and eat with them, right? Whoever them might be, the Jew, the Gentile, the black person, the white person, the immigrant, the citizen, the slave, the free, the Republican, the Democrat. But, okay, this story doesn't just tell us that we need to let go of us and them thinking. It tells us something else, which I, which I hit on earlier. It reminds us that conversion matters. Letting go of us and them thinking doesn't mean concluding that uh, all, ro all roads lead to God. They're all really the same. It doesn't mean concluding all religions are basically, uh, basically the same ideas. You know, some people will tell you that letting go of us and them thinking means reaching that conclusion. Um, but that is not what this story teaches us. Because right after Peter says, now I know that God does not show favoritism, the next thing he does is he proclaims the gospel. He talks about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and about the importance of putting our faith in him. And he finishes that whole speech by saying, 
all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the results of that gospel presentation are pretty amazing. Okay? It then says, uh, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. I love that ending there, right? Because at first, Peter is probably uncomfortable to even go into a Gentile's home. And then it's like, hey, Peter, stay for a while. And he does, right? He doesn't just stay for one meal. He stays for a bunch of meals. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to wrap it up now. But here is what I want us to take away from this story, okay? I want us to notice that there were two reasons Cornelius was able to come to faith. There's more than just two reasons, but these are the two I want to emphasize. Obviously, the fundamental reason is because God was at work, God was initiating all this, God was arranging this, right? But there are two reasons that I want us to focus on beyond that. One, because Peter was willing to let go of us and them thinking. Okay, Cornelius never would have had this experience if Peter was unwilling to even come into his home. And Peter wouldn't have been willing to do that unless he was willing to let go of us and them thinking. And then second reason Cornelius is able to come to faith is because Peter was willing to share the good news about Jesus. Because he was actually willing to talk about Jesus with him. Because he wasn't shy. He was bold about proclaiming the message. And you know what? It seems to me that in the church, and I'm not just talking about this church. When I say the church, I mean the church worldwide. That we tend to be good at doing one but not both of these things one or the other. So there's a lot of people out there who are zealous to share the good news about Jesus. And they're not shy about talking about it, not shy about proclaiming it, but they're not so good at letting go of us and them thinking. People that encounter them always feel like it's a battle, right? That they're not on the same team as them. And they have a, they have a natural inclination to see other people as the enemy. But then on the other side of the coin, you have people who seem in the church who are really good at letting go of us and them thinking, but then they never talk about Jesus. They only talk about spirituality in sort of vague, diluted, politically correct terms, because you don't want to offend anybody, and you don't want to you know, hurt anybody's feelings because you believe that Jesus is the only way to truly know God and have a relationship with him. And we might think, is it really possible to combine these two things? And this story shows us that actually, yes, it is. And we need to combine these two things. And there is something so powerful and beautiful about people who have let go of the natural human inclination for us and them thinking, who aren't inclined to overemphasize their successes and downplay the other group's successes, who aren't inclined to ignore their faults, but harp on the other group's faults. 
you know, who aren't inclined to just look out for their own group's power and privilege. When there are people who can do that, it is just an incredible testimony to the world. But when those same people can also be bold about proclaiming the truth about Jesus, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness of sins that comes through his name, that is when God moves. That is when the church grows. And I believe that the more that we can do that, the more that we will see people like Cornelius. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. And we thank you so much for guiding uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles out of the us and them thinking and, 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 and helping them to see that your heart is for the whole world. We thank you, Lord, that we are the, the beneficiaries, Lord, today of that, that change in thinking. And Lord, I pray that you would open our, our, our hearts and our minds to any areas where we, too, might need to let go of us and them thinking in order to spread the gospel. I pray, Lord, that as we, we let the us and them thinking go, as we repent of it, Lord, you would make us fearless and bold in proclaiming the good news about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.